You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Wayne Kostenbaum. Wayne! A pleasure. I will always take your phone call. Oh, well, thank you. How wonderful to hear your voice. It's been so long. I know. I feel the same. And I I, I think uh, we must repair this, and we will start repairing it by having this phone call. Um, you know, when I use the word repair, it reminds me immediately of a, a wonderful line I find of John Berger, and I, I, I wonder how you would react to it, where he says that poetry can repair no loss, but it defies a space which separates, and it does so by a continual labor of reassembling what has been scattered. Oh, I so love that. And it reminds me of Auden's famous line and contested, controversial line, uh, poetry makes nothing happen. Right. Which always makes me feel that poetry's gift is that it makes nothing happen, because so many of the things that happen probably shouldn't happen. And it's given the amount of destruction in the world, if poetry can repair by... Staying our hands and preventing us from unwise, hasty action, um, then it's doing the right thing. And we and we put too much value. Uh, it seems to me that uh, Auden's comment is so hopeful because we put too much value in what things, in in an instrumentalized view of what things can do. Um, when indeed I, I, I find that, you know, since we, you and I, I think both suffer from a disease that I certainly have, uh, uh, identified and diagnosed for myself, which is quotomania, I will, I will, um, I will quote something else to you, which I think might be resonant for you, uh, from the photographer Elliot Erwitt, who said, I don't believe that photography can change the world, but it can show the world changing. Mm, and that's such a, such a beautiful paradox, because famously, photography seizes the world in moments of stillness, right. not of change. Right. So that even thinking of Atchez, Atchez, um, phenomenal photos of a Paris that was in the process of changing, but that had not, perhaps, a, a, a Paris on the threshold of change. What's so moving in those photos is, um, is the hovering on that threshold. That's right. Wayne, what, what, uh, I know you were expecting my call, yes. but what, what have I interrupted? What are you, another way of asking it is, what are you up to? I am, well, I am, I, I mean, I'm on the threshold of the holidays, so I'm, let's say I'm packing or unpacking my library. I, feel, I literally yes. am, actually, since I'm, uh, I, I've, I've spent the last couple of months going through my papers, going back to the before even we met in 1985 and looking at drafts um looking at unpublished materials and i'm surrounded now by boxes filled with this 
ephemera and residue of the past. And uh, and what does I mean? You 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 can imagine knowing knowing me as you do, and we 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 should tell anybody who might be listening to our or over overhearing our conversation at some point, uh, eavesdropping as it were, that we've known each other for. Uh, many more years than maybe we will disclose, but you already used the, you, the year 1985. So you, you, you will know that when you say this, it, it, it's tremendously important to me to, to ask you what, what this, what this feeling of unpacking conjures up for you. What, as you unpack your library, as Benjamin did so many years back ago when he wrote that essay, what is it conjuring up for you to find these remnants of of the past? Well, it, it, I, I'm aware of the perpetual labor I've been undergoing as a writer. It's, I think, maybe any writer's fate, this... this um, You said quotomania, but I've always been drawn to the concepts of logeria and graphomania and even sought them out. Um, and I've always chided myself for not writing enough, uh, not writing deeply enough, I not should, writing I... accurately enough, or even just simply in terms of quantity, not writing enough. Before I go to bed at night, I feel if I haven't written that day, Perhaps I've wasted the day. Um, I'm in mourning. I, I, I spent my whole writing life in a state of mourning the texts I can't write, haven't written, don't have the temerity or authority or courage to write. Um, so looking at this kind of monumental heap of scraps that I've accumulated over the years, I, I see, it's, I, I think kind of poignantly, the traces of this mad rush to inscribe. I think in terms of, I think of Benjamin in the Bibliothèque Nationale researching the 19th century arcades um, and finding in that library a place of permanence and, and maybe a, a door, a, a, a kind of a revolving door between centuries, between um, a, a frozen but waiting to be rekindled past um, and a future. I know that you sit at the helm or, um, or one of the several helms of one of the great American institutions, the New York Public Library, which is where I wrote in that reading room much of my dissertation. Uh, so I guess really, so so you wrote um, double the, talk. I wrote it um, in the reading room. Really, mm -hmm. because, bring, bring, because bring, I was looking at at least at that point, I was looking at fantasy novels that the New York Public Library had in. Um, you know, there were these books were falling apart. I remember one in particular. It was a collaborative novel by Andrew Lang and H. Ryder Haggard. <laughs> World's <laughs> desire. I don't think it's a memorable novel, but but I so wanted to see what their idea of the world's desire might be, and I and I remember reading it. Um, it came in one of those little boxes where books too fragile to hold up themselves by their spine are kept. And each time I turned a page, I think the page broke. So I was destroying the book in the process of. Of reading it, but I remember the light coming in the 
room, and the sense, the Benjaminian maybe, sense of uh, frozenness in motion. I think of, um, I think some of, a lot of the modernists held that idea dear, which seems to be threading through a lot of the things we're talking about this morning, of changelessness and metamorphosis at the same moment. Right. Right, so, uh, something that 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 lasts and something that is ephemeral at the same time. And I'm also very, of course, extremely taken by the notion of you you're working in a particular space, and in 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 effect, the space conjures up the memory of what you wrote. And I remember um, one of our very first conversations, Wayne. Um, so long ago now, uh, when we were younger, let's put it that way, um, was on a small text that I so loved, and I think at some point you read later on, which was Proust's text on reading. Yes. And um, you will remember in On Reading, he talks about the fact that what mattered less than what he was reading was the fact that he was reading it in a particular place and a butterfly would come and uh, disturb his reading or his aunt would disturb him or call him for lunch. And what he remembers of the book is less a book than the space in which he read it. And I remember, I love that essay, I had not read it when you... Um, taught me it, um, and it uh, but I, I came to it later, and it is immortal. I remember when I read Proust, I've only read Proust, all of it, once. It was in the summer of 1986, and I remember, it, I was, I think for at least a few volumes of it, I was staying at a friend's house on the North Fork near Orient, and I remember there was no TV in the house, this was before videos, um, there was no iPhones, it, you know, so that the sun would set and I would sit on these sort of chintz, oversized, shabby chic armchairs and read a hundred pages of Proust tonight. And I remember how deep the chairs were. And I, rem I, I remember certainly that sense of country time unfolding, it being eight and then nine. And, and with that, the sense of my surprise at finding Proust so funny which I had after Cambrai, which is gorgeous and brocaded, but difficult. The surprise of Proust was how light and um, socially accurate it was. But I, re I certainly remember more than the details of the plots of that novel, uh, the sense of immersion at night in the summer, in the country, in my 20s, um, in this voyage with the book with its silver cover, I guess it was the Kilmartin translation. Right, right, the 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 two volume one. Yeah, or three. No, here. no, no, three volumes. Creed it was it was Kilmartin. Right. I'm looking at it right. Right, no, it's three volumes. It was two volumes at first, and then they did a three volume one, and now they've revised it. And you know, I I I don't. You are multilingual, Paul, and it's it's one of your um, one of your many assets and gifts, and and I am. Uh, just an American child, a California suburb child. So I'm really, I am monolingual, but I have, I've taken French lessons. I've, I've 
sought my whole life to try to read French adequately, and I've never read Proust in French, but I did read some Gide in France in French a few years ago, and that um, that experience somehow brings me closer to you, Paul. As, as does the thought of Roland Barthes, whom you introduced me to when you worked at Macabre Books. Yes, yes, uh, and and who had been, you know, who had been my teacher um, in the late 70s. I, I was, oh, I I, I, yeah, I was in France at that glorious, crazy moment where there was, you know, Bart and, and Foucault and, and, um, Yankelevich and Henri Biro and, uh, Levi Strauss. And I mean, all of those people were teaching in the late 1970s. So I would go, when I say my teacher, it's too much, but I would go and listen. I would go to the Collège de France and hear here, Bart, and I had a, a couple of, of, of exchanges with him that mattered so much. So, you know, when, when Fragments of a Lover's Discourse came out, it was tremendously close to me. And I must say, reading now in preparation in some way, but also just for the pleasure of it all, uh, your, your beautiful essay on, on, on Bart brought me, as it were, very close to you in, in my 1980s. You write so, so splendidly about a concept in, 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 in Bart, which is tremendously important, quite apart from the grain of the voice, which of course would touch you, is also the notion of nuance. Right. That's right. It's something like that. It's not the content of an utterance. It's not even the formal attributes of an utterance or a sound. It's um, it's char- it's the temperature or aroma or um, the the after effect of it. And it's it's those moments in my earlier life. It was in music, but then in poetry and in visual art. Um, that seized me and made me um, want to become the peculiar investigator um, that I am. It, it, it's, it's, I think the, vo- the voice for us both, I think, has been always primary, that when we hear a great singing voice, it's uh, th- the thing in the voice that is inimitable can't specifically be touched or named. Right. And it's a vanishing thing. I remember, this is where I am digressing, Paul, but I do remember talking with you about my dear favorite soprano, Anna Moffo, in your apartment on whatever that street was in Princeton, and you had her recording of Via Lobos and Rachmaninoff and Cantaloupe. And that, that's right, the, uh, the Bacchianas Brasileiras. And 
I have, I don't know if, if now is a moment, but I have queued up here on um, YouTube that immeasurable archive, um, a recording of her from 1959 singing um, Pamina's aria. Put it on. I'm going to put it on right now. Immeasurable. Unbelievable. Immeasurable, unbelievable, exquisite. Um... There's no... Um, the thing that is so shocking to me about that, too, is that most of life is filled with what the Buddhists, I think, call dukkha or unsatisfied... I'm not pronouncing it the Sanskrit correctly. Unsatisfactoriness, which is not the same thing as unhappiness or misery, but just a general unsatisfactoriness of experience. And most aesthetic experiences as well have a certain amount of unsatisfactoriness, boredom, the dull patches in Wagner, whatever, even in Proust perhaps, snobbery in Proust. There's always, there's always something unsatisfactory. And what is astonishing about that performance and her voice at its best is that there is nothing unsatisfactory. There is every articulation, um, every crescendo, the, the quality of the sound and its measured use um, is a, a, a distillation of just pure pleasantness, but without, with nothing saccharine. But the other thing, it's the, it's a kind of, there's a melancholy, um, almost overripe uh, fullness, to warmth to the sound. It's a spent years thinking about the marvel of that sound, um, and writing about it. Yeah, writing, thinking about. You know, how is it that a sound can be so clear, and but also and so clear and perfectly pitched and tasteful, and at the same time have so much eros and fullness and. Um, 
Well, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm reminded of what Blanchot said about fascination, that fascination is to be touched at a distance. Oh, that's beautiful. Right, right? and, and in, a, in a way, we're, we're so close here to, to issues pertaining to kind of the tactile inebriation. There's something one wants to reach. Uh, when listening to, to this voice, when, when it's just, um, I think fascinated and mesmerized by it. And I'm, I'm reminded, since we were speaking about Bart, of, of, of one moment in Bart where he says that, um, and I, I know you, this notion of linguistic skin interests you, where he says, language is a skin. I rub my language against the other. It is as if I had words instead of fingers, or fingers at the tip of my words. My language trembles with desire. That is so beautiful, and I'm going to answer that with a, um, a passage that Susan Sontag quotes from Elizabeth Hardwick's novel, Sleepless Night. Tell me. This is, this is Hardwick here. The torment of personal relations... Nothing new there except in the disguise and in the escape on the wings of adjectives, sweet to be pierced by daggers at the end of paragraphs. And then Sontag, in her the final four or five sentences here of commentary on Hardwick, writes, Nothing new except language the ever found, cauterizing the torment of personal relations with hot lexical choices, jumpy punctuation, mercurial sentence rhythms, devising more subtle, more engorged ways of knowing, of sympathizing, of keeping at bay. It's a matter of adjectives. It's where the stress falls. Oh, it's... I love it. I love it, too. And, and you know, I, I've, I've often said that the, 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 the reason we love people is because we share their adjectives. <laughs> I think that, that derided part of speech that, you know, Hemingway and Stein and a, a lot of stylistic purists have wanted to purge language of, maybe for good reasons, but it's the... Um, the the, moment, the, the bit of excess that an adjective provides, the cushioning, the strangeness. Um, and what Sontag says here, cauterizing the torment of personal relations with hot lexical choices. She's, that is a philosophy, and it's not aestheticism. It's not escape from an unsatisfactory reality through the dreamland of adjectives, but it's a, an act of cauterization, and this brings us to what you began the conversation with, repair. Right. Poetry repairs by cauterizing the wound of existence. And at the same time, you begin your, your wonderful essay um, in your, your book, my, my 1980s. The first sentence of your essay on Susan Sontag is, Susan Sontag, my prose prime mover, yes. ate the world, ate yes. the world. Yes, she ate her... Um, her restlessness and avidity for for all kinds of experience, particularly aesthetic experience and experiences of pain. I think the way she uh, sought out extreme literatures and ex extreme. 
extreme films, but also extreme historical situations. Um, so again, I think that those of, and I'm no Sontag either as a world traveler or even as a cinephile, but that those of us who um, look to arts to for to cauterize um, remain sensitive, I think, to the pain and the pleasure at the same time. It's kind of on that on that threshold. Can you say something more about what you mean when you say cauterize? Cauterize. I mean, I think it's it's you know I think that when when there's a a wound, you cauterize it by. I mean, I imagine you you, you take a hot iron to to an to something to seal the wound and pre prevent it from bleeding and to provide anesthesia. Um, and so I, I'm thinking again of that, let's just say that moment of Anna Moffo singing Mozart um, cauterizes the wound of existence by, uh, let's just say with one pitch. There's the... the, the with which that pitch is upheld, but with the lightest quivering vibrato changes, um, it, it, I, I mean, I would say that the accuracy of the pitch is the thing that seals the wound. Right. And it's the vibration through the warm vibrato that prevents that moment of sealing from being itself a new kind of death sentence or incarceration. It remains, you seal the wound, but then you remain open to flux uh, and to, to, to vibration. Um, it's getting a little abstract. I know what I'm... No, 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 no. I, I, I think what you're you're developing a, a what one might call an aesthetic or a, a philosophy of, of uh, what what literature in the broadest possible sense can possibly do for us um it is it is a it it provides solace and is an irritant it is so many different things at the same time and in my 1980s you 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 have this line where you say my mission in the 80s was to develop my aestheticism my mission in the 90s was to justify my aestheticism what is your mission in the 2020s my mission in the 2020s is to persevere in my aestheticism and have, well, I, I don't know if I would call it aestheticism anymore because aestheticism is the brand name of a movement, right? you know, a 19th century movement that made, that, that, uh, Tended to shut off the negatives of life right more than it actually did and I would say that my my present philosophy is would be to use aesthetics to open consciousness and open sensitivity to a plenitude of nuance which which would give us insight accurate insight into the world's condition um, mm -hmm. but that not take a kind of shallow or uh, scolding moralism as the bellwether or navigational tool, but take um, sensitivity.
you know, when you use that word plenitude, it, it brought back to mind uh, the conversation I had just before I spoke to you on this phone call. Uh, the last phone call I had was, and we spoke about you, was with Maggie Nelson. Mm, dear Maggie. Yes. Maggie's mind is so fertile and electric, uninhibited and ethical. That's, All at once. And, and that plenitude you must have in some way, um, insofar that we can speak, um, without blushing, uh, about the notion of, of influence, you must have given her, um, license for, um, a, a very voracious appetite. I hope so. I mean, I sort I remember, um, taking my PhD students around the art galleries in Chelsea in the late 90s, Maggie, or the early 2000s, Maggie among them, and I remember her reticent, wide-eyedness at the possibility of a literature professor taking literature students on a tour of art galleries. Um, not that it's such a scandal, but that it was um, a leap outside of the linguistic skin into something else. And this reminds me actually of what you were, when you were talking about reaching toward tactility in a moment of listening. Yes. Um, and I was thinking about synesthesia, particularly, or the necessity for me, and I think for you, since we are both, in a way, expatriates, yes. various kinds from different milieus that we have inhabited and rejected and moved on from. Um, the necessity of leaping between disciplines or occupations or media or genres or languages to um, to maximize terrible word to to, to make uh, to to replenish the coffers of our attentiveness um, and, and and so what I'm thinking what I gave Maggie perhaps or showed her uh, one way. To, to do this in the world and that you've shown me and that Bart showed you um, and that Sontag showed me and you is, I, I guess, a, a way to to leap as frequently and recklessly as possible between um, modes of processing. Uh, and and, and, and in, in a sense, what... what um what brings us together as it were in this in this grand great family if we if we can all be uh, in that family is a matter which adam phillips speaks about beautifully which is one of of appetite yes of, yes. of really and and that's when you when you begin the essay that i i quoted on on on, on sontag by saying she ate the world it's 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 a voraciousness and and appetite also that in some way cannot be um cannot be quenched the thirst cannot be quenched yes and i want to ask as our half hour winds down i want to be sure i can ask you this question paul which is i'm fascinated by your uh, a voraciousness as a tweeter and by your erudition as a tweeter. And I've, I'm very new to tweets. It's only been a couple of months, but I, 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 I love it. So I would love to, to have your take on, you know, as a Benjaminian at heart and a Proustian, what is, um, can you say something about what the medium of the tweet does for you and how you use it? Well, I, I, I'm tr uh, many things. On on the one hand, I think it's oppositional to what Twitter 
has become famous for, and we might speak a little bit after this about humiliation. Yeah. So, so in in some sense, to elevate a a a platform, as it were, again a horrible word, uh, as horrible as maybe maximize, but we, we 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 both we both have to have at least one or two horrible words. So, but but it is a form of you know since I am a quotomaniac and since I steal and and steal constantly and steal from from the, the, that very platform itself, it is a way for me to redeem um, or repair or care for uh, a form that I know matters to you so much as well, which is the aphorism and um it permits me to to do that in on a, in a very broad and open way and to show whoever it is who is following and that of course is a whole strange thing in and of itself um uh, my my taste um it's really a way of making unknown people around the world and known people around the world um uh giving them a sense of what what matters to me so i will i will on twitter for instance quote um this line from montaigne where he says i quote others in order the better to express myself and that quotation obviously it's 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 it has nearly a certain irony being on that on that medium because that's exactly what follows when you when you when you follow what what i put on online as it were it's a very strange thing because um on the one hand i like it very much on the other hand i'm slightly addicted to it uh, and then um is it there's something slightly reprehensible about it also um you use it in a very unique way i mean you you um it's it's primarily cultural i mean as i see it it's it's in, in celebration and appreciation of astonishing memorable moments in cinema and literature primarily right music somewhat as well um and and there's a, a certain um a beautiful, I won't call it antiquarianism because we're talking about often the 60s or the 70s or the 50s or the 80s, but a, 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 a tenderness toward the past rather than a, a greedy um, looking always toward the next trend or the next thing. It's that you're a custodian, as am I, and an appreciator of lost resources. Right. Um, and to that extent, also a an ecologist. As I think Sontag said, Somewhere, maybe in um, in in on photography, that something about a she said something about photography um, demanding of us a new ecology of images. Right. Um, so I, I I love um, I love your attention and your tweets to or whatever one calls them to <laughs> birth dates and death days of of great figures of the past like Hannah Arendt. Right. You know, so the, one can the feeling I get from your your feed is that literature and art were always in the process of happening, and that even monumental figures from the past uh, lived or died on specific days that come round every year. Right, and we and we we celebrate them sometimes mournfully so that i will have quoted also there um um 
a, a wonderful line that I can't quite bring to mind completely, but of Leopardi, where he talks about sensitive creatures who celebrate anniversaries and deaths. And, and, and there is something, of course, you know, referential about quoting that because it has a lot to do with what I care for, which is to quote an extraordinary line from Hannah Arendt, really about the fact that people don't anymore care about what is true and false. And, and it's funny to see that that quotation of Hannah Arendt has gone viral, meaning tens of thousands of people are reading it. And I read it out aloud sometimes in, in my presentations here and in my introductions. And I found also online uh, today a line about quotation, which comes from Anne Carson, which I want, which I want to read to you because you said in your essay on, on Sontag again, I swore allegiance to the aphorism. That's what you swore allegiance to the aphorism after reading Sontag and just before reading Benjamin. And Carson says, what is a quote? A quote cognate with quota is a cut, a section, a slice of someone else's orange. You suck the slice, toss the rind, skate away. Part of what you enjoy in a documentary technique is a sense of banditry, to loot someone else's life or sentences and make off with a point of view, which is called objective because you can make anything into an object by treating it in this way, is exciting and dangerous. Let us see who controls the danger. Yes, and that's the, ed the, 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 the edge that is in aphorism or in any kind of cut, uh, aesthetic cut, and uh, modernism and, and Every, I mean, every, everything that we hold dear in art, I think, since 1912, comes from the cut um, and the excerpt, and the, the, uh, that there there is a there is a, a sharp edge when a line begins and ends, um, or when something is stolen from its context, and and um, there's an erotics to our savoring of that. And there's, I think, a collective erotics, a communitarian um, esprit that comes from cultivating one's sensitivity to rapture through voracious sampling, um, and then transmitting it to others with a with a, a, a equal greed. I mean, I felt as I was holding the phone to the my computer playing Anna Maffo's Mozart. Um, and transmitting it to you that and you and I sharing that that was perfect teaching that was perfect learning um, and it was uh, a model of, a, of one kind of social contract I think is to um, collect together what matters and to save what matters I was thinking when you said uh, when you quoted Hannah Arendt and said that it went viral that um, the right sentence from a lost book can change the world right right um and and you know i i i also know uh, that you're going through 
your your papers as you were saying that you're unpacking your your the, the residues of your writing because you post it online this is what a um uh, this is what a a draft looked like in the 1990s or in the 1980s. Yes, and, yes, and, yes and, you're and, seeing uh, that's one reason. One thing I'm taking pleasure in, selfish pleasure, perhaps yeah. from tweet tweeting, is that I as I go through my files and I find these things like a page from 1987 with all these colored pencil markings. I still revise by hand a lot, but maybe not quite as flamboyantly or exclusively. And I do take the short cuts of computer. Of course. Thing. But yet I love um, finding these and I, I love tweeting them. And I find that th those ones are liked or whatever by a lot of other writers who are eager, I think, for verification and corroboration of the difficulties and transports of the writing act. Well, you know, um, Benjamin used to talk of the collector uh, as, in terms of recollecting, as a savior. Yes, a savior. and I think that you you are a transmitter as much as a collector now. I think maybe you um, earlier in life when you, as a child or whatever, when you had fewer possibilities of transmitting um, and disseminating that you were maybe began as a collector, but that um, certainly now and in your work at the library and here on, on the, whatever we are, are we on air, are we on pod, we, we, wherever we, we, we are in, wherever we're dwelling now in this conversation, yes. um, you, your collection is an open collection. That's right. That's right. And it's for all at this point to, to, to hear and to hear in so many different ways because people are hearing our conversation. We're hearing each other. We heard music, which, you know, was, is so wonderful because when Proust spoke for the first time about the pleasures of the phone, which the phone itself has become highly exotic. We, ba we barely speak to each other on the phone anymore. We text. But it, you, what Proust so loved, and he talks about it in La Recherche, is that he could hear the bells of the church uh, far away where he was calling. So a whole world was brought in um, when, when he made those first phone calls. Well, you brought a whole world in to anybody who's listening to us now of, of you know, Anna, Anna Moffo, uh, singing and, and sharing with, with me and with everyone else just why it is that you love her so and wrote such extraordinary poems in her honor. But I'm, you know, the other side of, 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 uh, of Twitter, of course, is a side we hear about every morning, um, and every afternoon and every evening. And, um, I, I'm, I'm wondering now, in the context of our present political situation, and having written a book as you did on humiliation, and where you 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 mention humiliation in terms of another very strong political figure, um, how um, how you you see the the current situation in terms of humiliation and in terms of. Uh, the the present um, president um, perhaps also um, thinking about him in terms of the ways in which you describe humiliation. Well, with one, uh, there's so much to say on this topic, and I'm probably not the person for it ultimately. Um, but I mean, since I have a, a, I often have. A, a, 
kind of reticence when it comes to certain kinds of overt statements. Yes, well, well, say something covert, and that's why I'm... Say something covert about it, which is, I think, the most humiliating thing that I... There's a different kind of humiliation that's going on. Aside from, there are obviously acts of shaming going on all the time, and then there there are people who need more shaming. And, you know, there's insufficient shaming, but, but the act of humiliating others via cyberbullying or calling out of political figures or the pres- some of the president's more um, vile acts of singling out of individuals um, on Twitter. I mean, there's a kind of savagery of attack that goes on all the time. But the, I think there is a kind of humiliation of language and of, call it national, I mean, I would, just to do a quick laundry, I think that the the globe is being humi- ecologically humiliated. Yes. I mean, that there's yes. liter- literally the extent to which whatever the kinds of farce that are going on in our government, um, it, what, that's playing out on the level of farce, but the, where it's happening in a, in, a, in a more grievous way, beyond humiliation, is... Um, the planet. Um, one of my favorite lines in all of Western poetry is from Paradise Lost, which is when after Eve eats the apple, uh, Milton writes, Earth felt the wound. And I think of that line a lot. Gosh, and so I think, gosh. you know, Earth is not necessarily humiliated by the feeling of the wound, but that there, but if there is a, um, thinking of Greek tragedy, and the Trojan women, if there are, you know, if the utterances of the spoils of war, the raped, uh, the victimized, uh, their cries, um, the cries of the humiliated are, 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 are that, are, are what we are hearing in a sense right now. So I think, and I also think, like, I think that, um, like when the United States pulled out of the Paris climate, Agreement, or when uh, just I think when language is trashed, um, when cultural monuments are not revered, um, when civil rights and certain standards of dignity and respect um, are are not paid tribute to, there is a a, a kind of. I don't know. I just I think of, of you know one of those faces in Potemkin or something yes, like that, yes, yes. or um, or the face of Falconetti in in the Passion of Joan of Arc. It's a it, it's beyond humiliation. But you know the li- the line you used of Milton. What is it again? Earth felt the wound. You know, I mean, one does think there of cauterization. Yes. You know, I, I, it it really makes you think. You know what. What are we doing, and how how can we heal? How can we heal this wound, um, Wayne? I, I'd like you to read something, to read something of your own. Yes, you, 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 I you, will. You, I will. You, um, you played something. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we certainly quoted a few things here and there. We certainly did what. Um, or, or try to do to some extent what 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 Bart encourages uh, um, his his readers to read in his book on Michelet, where he says he wants to create an organized web of obsessions, and and here we are, you know, um, at the end of this conversation, and I I want to hear something in your own voice of yours. Yes, I'm going to read just um, 
I'm going to read a, a, a paragraph from my newest book, Notes on Glaze, and it's from the introduction, and it's where I come maybe closest to um, articulating a philosophy of aesthetics or experience. I say here, the etudes here, assembled in this book, the etudes here don't announce a theory, though sometimes they try to. I aimed to describe contrasting sensations of imaginative abundance and of bleak frozenness. I wanted the pleasure and discipline of trying to pack too much material into a very tight container. I wanted to overflow the seams, to enter the pressure chamber of aphorism, and to dally with an uncomfortable eroticism, a sexuality melancholy, loquacious, brash, whose flashy curtain razors intersect with risk and regret. A farcical approach to arousal doesn't preclude ambrosial regression, time suspension, and mystical dilation. Everywhere in my writing, desire interrupts the banquet like a rude guest or a gregarious tumbler trying to rev the audience. I cook up cheap thrills so I can feel alive enough to analyze. Sequential language, its wheels, its protocols, puts me in the position of witnessing the fires of elation through a glazed pane, a screen that turns the excitement into a festival of embers, even though the embers try to dress themselves up as full-fledged flames. Goodness. You know, in that same, in that same, in that same book, which I just received and, and had the pleasure of reading, I think in the notes on Glaze, a beautiful, beautiful book published by Cabinet, you relay this letter that Marina Tsvetsayeva wrote uh, to Boris Pasternak, where she says, Boris, this is not a real letter. The real ones are never committed to paper. Yes. How do you understand that? It's, it, I mean, it, it reminds me so much of what Elizabeth Bishop said in a letter to Robert Lowell, I think. You know, when will I write the real poems? Um, and it, it maybe this gets back to the beginning of our conversation when I was speaking of the poignance to me of my endless acts of futile inscription over the years, always, you know, trying to write the thing and writing and writing and writing, but always feeling, well, it's never quite the right one. That, that, that I think that's why we keep making things is, is this dissatisfaction with what we have made and a sense that even if sometimes in the act of making we feel this plenitude, like all of experience is finally finding its home in a stanza or a paragraph or a sentence, everything is enclosed and being heard. Then upon rereading it, one finds the faulty adjective, the leaking adjective, the
Um, so it's it's all a form of of uh, approximation. Yes, yes. Except for again, except certain aphorisms that are kind of shined or polished right. by time and, and by collective regard. Something like "Earth felt the wound." Right. Um, Maybe if one of us just sat down and wrote that, it wouldn't feel quite so good. But uh, in the context of Paradise Lost and in the context of all the people who have read Paradise Lost, those Earth felt the wound for monosyllables, the plainest language, still has the power to um, electrify. And maybe, maybe make people... Um, in in some way, I mean, in in a way that may not be the usual way. Mm-hmm. This is a way in which uh, to to come back to order. Poetry does something, but of a different nature. Yeah. What if Earth felt the wound? Our work is there. Well, what did Earth say? Right. It felt the wound, and what do we say to Earth? In in closing, Wayne, might you might you leave us with a poem of your own? Absolutely. Um, I'll read, Paul, the poem that I wrote for you so long ago. It's not something that I would write anymore. It's in an older, yearning, somewhat juvenile style. It's from my first book. So I I wrote the poem in 1985, but I will read it in your honor, Paul. Oh, well, thank you. And it's called The Moving Occupations. And I wrote it after seeing Caravaggio's Bacchus. Summer light I was driving toward became up close, winter, and at the highway's unexpected end, I shivered and rolled up the windows. A minor chord swelled in my car's cathedral. I love and fear the moving occupations, your naked realistic throat, Bacchus, and your sneer flushing you from nipple to the hand that lifts a god's wine glass cannot intend to invite, but I follow you into the room where I want Paul, nearly a stranger, a foreign man I heard get lost, traveling through our unresolved first conversation about how Proust lingers on the doorstep of sex for hours and never knocks. Motion will not solve destination into the forest are human nervous days or into this dream of a clearing a bed i love better than any truthfulness paul's interest in burning journeys like a book of prayer put in the pocket for its weight and not its words is a cry i seem to hear out of a deep thicket our full stare falters and goes underground I thought I had outgrown wanting to be unsatisfied, asking Paul whether the Baroque head weighted down with leaves is passionate enough if he sees what I accept, the invitation of pallor, the room's goblet spilling, hewn drapery slipping off the shoulder. But the boy's enduring eyes are their own luxury with nothing more to say. In his indifference, I am alone as the car stammers, journeys in the difficult direction, turning where the man advised not to, following what I know from boys and fables, not the throats of logicians whose theorems are only beautiful.
devils have darkened Bacchus, and the girls are gone. Wayne, thank you so much. You're welcome, Paul. Such a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much, and see you in the new year. Yes, I look forward to the drink. Bye-bye. Bye.